Do we have anybody in the room? Uh, yeah, so I think people can hear me, right? So actually, I do not see, I do not see Andre and Leslie in the room yet, but they're supposed to be joining me. So let's see. I'm going to check something real quick. Hold on. Yeah, so I can't hear you even though. Yeah, I have to unmute myself. But uh, did you invite in Leslie? Oh, hold on. And and there we go. Everybody's there. All right, Leslie's in there. You just got to make sure to bring him up on the stage. Yeah, I yeah, I invite him to speak. All right. Okay, perfect. Okay, perfect. All right, hey. All right, hey. Hey, what's going on? Wow, we yeah. made it. Yeah, yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. Sorry for the technical difficulties. For the technical difficulties there. It's pretty much like that every time that you, um, every time a stream gets started, uh, that uh, that a call-in room gets started, uh, there's always a little bit of technical difficulty. Everyone's got to make sure they hear each other. Okay, so real quick. Okay, so real why quick. Am I hearing why am I hearing myself? You're hearing yourself. Yeah, yeah, I'm hearing myself. Yeah, yeah I'm hearing myself. Yeah, you yeah, have, you an have echo. an echo. Oh no. Oh no! Hold on a second. I, I think I got this figured out. All right. Can you speak again? Okay. Test. Okay. Test. Yeah. I'm still. Yeah. Hearing. I'm still hearing. Is there an echo? Is there an echo for everyone else? else? Yes, yes, I hear it. Yes, yes, I hear it. I'm echoing yeah. too. Figuring it out Figure in real time. In real time. <laughs> Live radio. Live radio. Phone. Were you still hearing it? Test. Yes. Test. Yes. Yeah, still hearing yeah, it. Yeah, still hearing it. So, so when I talk, when I, yours lights up too. So it's coming through. Okay, wait, it just stopped. Yeah, so it was coming through on your audio, but um, it stopped now. Okay, yeah, yeah, it stopped now. Okay, great, great. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Thanks for everyone's patience. Appreciate, oh, wait. Since, appreciate, oh, wait. Your end. Just started again on your end. Andre. Okay, it stopped again. All right, cool. So, yeah, the subject of this one, um, we had this idea... Actually, Leslie is the first one who um, sent me this article. And then Andre, I think, brought it up the same day. And then a bunch of people just started sending it to me. I thought it was pretty interesting. It was about the author, Alice Siebold. And Leslie, you've read her You've read her memoir? I skimmed it. I skimmed it. I didn't read the whole book, but I did skim it through some relevant sections. Her memoir, Lucky, which is what this whole uh, case is about, yes. So as far as this calling goes, I was trying to think, how can we make this show different than like Champagne Sharks and not just have like five different places to get the same type of show? So I thought like a good way to focus would be to make this show. So that's why it's like called Media Masochist, where uh, and media includes broadcast media, TV, movies, publishing, or even social media, where it's like we kind of talk about 
something that's happening in the discourse. Um, it could involve hate watching shows, reading horrible takes. I mean, basically, we're all kind of media masochists uh, anyway, so why not actually make some entertainment out of it uh, while we're at it? So, basically, this is two topics that were kind of uh, involved media, but also we're lighting up social media, which is uh, the Alex Siebold false rape accusation that where a guy served 16 years for a crime that he ended up not committing uh, her rape. And also uh, this show called Harlem, which the, the clips of it have even tapped my levels of hate watching. I mean, I have a high tolerance for hate watching and I cannot bring myself to watch this show, but you, Andre, you Q, you have actually, um, started watching the show. How far did you get through it? Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got through probably like five episodes. Um, I got, I got past the episode where the, uh, uh, the clip, the infamous clip, uh, the scene from the barber shop got shared on Twitter. I, I, that episode was actually like in context. Uh, the scene doesn't come across as bad because the rest of the show, the rest of the show is just so over the top. Like it was supposed to be a comedy. So I think a lot of it was exaggerated for effect. But I do, I do think that uh, the way that that uh, clip in isolation came off was indicative of the way that the rest of the show is, where it, it, it doesn't seem like black people who very much like other black people talking about black people. It, it seems like a lot of like college-educated people. Like if you, if you like read between the lines in the show, there's a lot of class antagonism, like there's just an utter disdain for black people below a certain income bracket. And uh, I, I think the barbershop scene was kind of indicative of the larger trend of that show, which is just shitting on poorer black people. Which kind of annoys me in the fact that the show is called Harlem, because I mean, <laughs> those are the kind of people that put uh, Harlem on the, on the map. And I just feel like if every character in the show, like a transplant, uh, do they have like any native Harlemites characters in the show? I know none of the creators are actually uh, native Harlemites from what I've read. Oh, you know what? I, I wasn't even like paying that close. Like I was watching the show while I was like doing chores and stuff, you know, like washing the dishes. And I was mostly like, it was kind of like background noise, if anything. So I wasn't paying close enough attention to, to determine whether like the pu- the characters on the show were people that were supposed to have grown up in Harlem or if there were people that like moved into Harlem from, from outside. It just seemed like a bunch of like, you know, like upper middle class, like the aspirations of like upper middle class, uh, you know, black women going about their daily pursuits, like their hilarious hijinks, and uh, the like the the low income black people in the neighborhood that just make their lives difficult. And, and that's what they kind of pissed me off. You're going to call the show like Harlem because I feel like uh, blue collar black people are a big part of the history of Harlem. And I was talking to Vito last night. Uh, I'm sorry, Leslie. I heard you starting to speak, so I'll just uh, wrap this up quick. Um, yeah. I was telling Vita that uh, these creatives to me feel like Buffalo Bob. I started calling them Buffalo Bobs from um, Science of the Lambs because they treat like black culture like a skin suit. Like you know, they they kill it, but then they try to wear the. Skin oh yeah, yeah, suit. like like Buffalo Bill from uh, Science of the Lambs. Oh, yeah. Buffalo Bob is someone else. Okay, Buffalo Bill. That's, that's I messed it up. Buffalo, yeah, yeah, they're like Buffalo Bills. Like basically, they um, uh, they kill something and then they try to disguise themselves as a thing and i feel like that's what 
uh, Harnam is. It's a skin suit. It's uh, basically, they have this Dane for these people. They basically kill them, um, but they also want to masquerade as these people. So now they're calling themselves uh, the face of Harnam, but they have no role in making Harnam the iconic uh, globally known place that it is. The people that uh, they're trying to kill are the, are the actual people that made Harlem like a household word. And the funny thing is, these people cannot actually create anything that has resonance. You know, like they always have to, like like Candyman, the Jordan Peele Candyman was a skin suit. Like, like they just are just a bunch of Buffalo Bills. And uh, if anyone can tell me who Buffalo Bob is, I know I got that from somewhere and it's going to drive me crazy. Duty, <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, uh, Leslie, you were saying. Yeah, so I watched the show and I, I did pay attention to it enough to actually kind of let the creators a bit off the hook. Because what they actually did, I swear to God, is they just watched Sex in the City and basically stole Sex in the City. Because yeah. basically the show is more Sex in the City than the new version of Sex in the City, which actually tries to update things a bit and actually is critical of the original show and characters. This one, the characters are just straight up the characters from Sex and the City, which means that all the humor is dated stuff about how unfuckable poor people are, etc., etc. And all the characters are just these money-obsessed sociopaths who we're still supposed to like for some reason. And now, so, Sex and so, the City... So it's a double skin. So it's a double skin suit. They're wearing a Sex in the City skin suit over the a Harlem skin suit. Yeah, I, I mean they they talk about gentrification in like the first couple of minutes, but it really doesn't matter. Like the even the question like are, are these people from Harlem? It doesn't even make sense when you ask. It's not about that. It's about like shopping and buying stuff and going places. It doesn't matter where you're from. It's about now. It's about the here and now. Like where is where are all any of the women from Sex in the City? from they always are meant to exist in manhattan and harlem just feels like manhattan in the show too i should say like the show is just sex in the the city so much uh so down to the fact that when you see that that barbershop scene this is one of the problem with sex in the city and a lot of sitcoms i feel where the main character the best sitcoms are the ones that understand the main characters are usually the bad people right because a sitcom character where you're talking about jerry seinfeld or Theo, all of them, all what they do is get into hijinks where they're basically lying to people and trying to get out of it. And the better shows acknowledge that the characters are bad, while the worst like shows... Honeymooners. Honeymooners is a great example. His, and Ralph Cramer yeah, did the schemes. Yeah, and the worst and the better, the better shows acknowledge that the characters are bad. Like It's Always Sunny, like a Seinfeld, like a, a Rested Development. But the bad shows, or the less bad, uh, less good shows, I should say, don't. And Harlem absolutely does not. You're supposed to root for these people as they just go around acting ridiculous and torturing uh, poor people. Well, I think one problem with these type of people is that they're very... They have big difficulties for writing... First off, they're narcissistic in that they want to have everything be an authorial insert, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, because look at something like Seinfeld, the Curb Your Enthusiasm. I mean, they even keep their actual names. Those are total authorial inserts. But the next step is, with any authorial insert, is you have to be willing to expose yourself and be vulnerable. Like, you don't want to be just a giant Mary Sue. And the problem with these people, I think, is twofold. They're totally unable to... Uh, do 
or absorb anything that is not constantly affirming. Like everything has to be affirming of themselves. They can't even take a critical tweet like like these type of people. So that makes it awful. But on top of everything, the second problem I find is they don't actually know what makes somebody annoying, including themselves. So even though they're trying to do Mary Sueish versions of themselves, they have they still end up actually being more critical of themselves than the people actually trying to be critical of themselves because they're presenting the most obnoxious traits <laughs> as likable because in their real lives that's how they are. Like they're very annoying and think that they're charming. Yeah, they don't see anything wrong yeah, and, with how they're behaving. And you see it yeah, when I, they I get dumped on on Twitter. Like, like whenever people get mad at them, they just keep doubling down and going down with the ship. And oh, uh, you know who was the absolute like the uh, the like the 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 matriarch of that like the the matron saint was uh, Ray Sainey. Oh yeah, she was oh, a great yeah. one. <laughs> Where like uh, like the the stuff that she would do that was just absolutely fucking annoying, just like. She would just say the wildest things, and they weren't even remotely funny. And then when people would just like dunk on her, she'd be like, "And that's why you don't understand humor. This is science fiction." It's like, what are you talking <laughs> about science fiction? Yeah, yeah. She called Bernie right, Sanders a Nazi. Yeah, she was like calling Bernie Sanders a Nazi or something like that. Just going absolutely wild. Did she? I don't know if it was her or somebody else. She came pretty. It was something similar to that, where she was just like going like absolutely scorched earth on Bernie for some reason. Yeah, um, she's a weird one. Yeah, very, in like a way that just didn't make sense. Like, I would tell her, like, like I we need black people in media. Can you please, like, stop wilding out on Twitter? Like, you're one of the few people, like, in those rooms, and at least you would know at least a little bit about politics. I don't want you, like, getting blacklisted because you can't, like, stop tweeting. I actually told her this. Yeah, and she got really, really upset. I mean, I've heard from people who've known her or work with her that she's uh, pretty unprofessional in her stand-up as well. But I mean, I don't want to slander her with, with hearsay. I want to stick to what yeah. is what is actually on the screen. But yeah, she um, was... Well, well, on the show, I was surprised that the response to the criticism wasn't, this is a comedy show. Like, nobody, like the writer didn't say, like, Oh, the uh, when people got mad about the barbershop thing, they didn't say like, "Well, we're just making a joke. This is a ridiculous character. It's not supposed to be real life." In fact, be way was, better. The defense was actually, "This is our lived experience." I'm like, I don't think it actually is. Yeah, I think what Andre, what Q said, was actually better. Where he said like the whole show is so ridiculous that it's almost like surreal. Uh, uh, over the topness, but she didn't go with that defense. She actually said, "No, this is like a." Uh, People's experience, and then she did this which I think really pissed a lot of people off. At least it pissed me off. She goes, "If your experience is different, you know, this doesn't invalidate that." It's like, "Well, gee, thanks." Like that doesn't give me the permission to be mad. Like, who's asking you for permission to be like that? Superiority, that smug superiority, <laughs> is even baked into the apology, where where she's giving us permission to hold on to our lived experience. Like, like, wow, thank you for letting me know that your conception of black male barbershops, which I'm sure you have not spent much, if any, time in. Uh, thanks for letting us know that your take on it doesn't supersede our own and that we're allowed, uh, thanks to you, you are, are allowing us to keep our own memories and trust them. Like, you know, uh, like, like, thank you. That's, yeah, but uh, yeah, I think, 
And that's what I mean by these people don't even understand how they're annoying. Like someone like uh, Larry David or Jerry Seinfeld, you know, can have a self-insert character that they try to make as annoying as possible and end up making them very engaging and entertaining. Whereas these people try to have versions of themselves that they want to make you love and end up making you hate them. Like it's so kind of ironic how unable they are to put themselves in other people's um, heads. Yeah, I was, uh, there was, there was another scene that I tweeted out because I was just, I was like, what kind of humor is this? It seems like, like, like some 1980s shit that you might see on in living color somewhere where uh, there was one character who she was hard up for cash and she needed like $600 and she dropped by her friend's um, boutique shop that her, her mom owns, but her friend basically runs the shop. And she asked her, Hey, can, you know, I need $600 desperately. Can I like, you know, fold some clothes or uh, attend to your customers or whatever. And her friend was like, no, I, you know, I, I don't have the, uh, the budget to pay somebody else. And then another customer happens to walk out of the change room with her daughter, who's probably like 10 or 12 years old. And, uh, I, she was complaining to the boutique owner that she needs a nanny. Uh, and she, she wants a nanny who's Jamaican because she had a Jamaican nanny growing up. And I was like, white, do white people even really talk like that to black people though? Like (laughs) maybe to each other, maybe, but I don't see, I don't see a white woman coming into a boutique shop in Harlem. And, and talking to a black woman like that, like n- nobody's really that oblivious. There's a phenomenon that uh, I coined this week because I was reading this book called The Other Black Girl that was kind of written like it's, it's written by the same type of person. Um, and I, I call it mm. uh, Boondocks White, where like Boondocks was a cartoon. Boondocks was a cartoon. <laughs> so the whites were right. cartoonishly um, clueless and wore like, the racism on their sleeve in the most oblivious uh smiling dopey ways and but it was funny because it was a cartoon like boondocks makes no sense it's made to be over the top uh cartoonish like people break into like samurai fights and uncle ruckus and all these stupid things but a lot of these uh current creatives they write shows that are supposed to be real life or slice of life or live action drama but they write the white people like and i think the reason that they write them like that this is my personal theory they want they know why people want you know to uh get like a view of like the black experience and like racism and everything but they don't want to feel too indicted so you have to i think what they're doing is you have to make the white people so cartoony that the white audience that you're gunning for doesn't feel like um yeah attacked <laughs> so so yeah. when they watch it they're like Wow, I would never do anything that stupid. These stupid white people, you know, that's the only thing I could think of. Yeah, and it's, it's the kind of person that will like log on to Twitter and see a scene like that and be like, sigh, white people. Like, you know, like they, it's almost like they think that there's a separate variety of white people that are just like so <laughs> over the top racist and oblivious that they can separate themselves from. And it's, it's really because these content, there's these black creators, these like writers and showrunners, producers, etc., deliberately set up that white foil. That is like, yeah, there's just like this mythical variety of white people. You probably haven't even met them, but we definitely have. Uh, you know, they come into like our juke joints and our, and our, our, our salons and our boutique shops. Uh, and it, this is how they talk to us. So and most like, importantly, they're not you. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Right. It, it gives them like a, a distance of removal. So, um, at, you know, as this lady was talking to her uh, friend and complaining that she needs a Jamaican nanny, um, the friend who was like hard up for cash, you know, she's this dark skinned uh, black American woman, um, turns around and then starts talking in the worst fucking Jamaican accent you'd ever heard in your life. Like I, I can, I can share it with you, but it was, it was so bad. Uh, like there's nobody that would have been fooled by that. Like, especially if you say that you grew up with a Jamaican nanny, nobody would possibly be fooled by an accent that bad. Um, and then the lady agrees to like give her $600 advance just to do an interview and then scoots off. And then the friend who was standing there the whole time listening to her talking that accent then gives her a less like a, a lecture on cultural appropriation. And I'm like, there aren't people that talk to each other like this. <laughs> and, 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 and can, I, can I ask you a question? Did they at least hang a lampshade on it? And part of the joke is that it's so bad. Like, uh... no, no, it was in, it was in all sincerity. Like it was it is basically like uh, like, you know, in a, like a Wayans Brothers movie where they make a joke so over the top that uh that's actually, it's actually not even a joke they'll make a joke about a point that is like made so much on the nose that somebody will turn to the camera and say message yeah it was it was like that but nobody actually turned to the camera and said message you know what's weird about what you just described right uh like i don't want to get into the whole diaspora war stuff and everything but there's something extra insulting in this climate of all these people just finished telling um for like years, um, black American people that, you know, you shouldn't care about uh, black people from Africa or Nigeria or England coming over and taking over, um, you know, white roles or in music, presenting themselves as, you know, it's like taking over black American roles or presenting themselves as black American, you know, for to make money and like, don't worry about it. But then when you finally do want to have a cultural appropriation lecture within the black community, you choose to lecture the black American about appropriating um, West Indianness, which doesn't make sense because I don't, I can't even think of a time that's a thing. Like, like that's such a weird way to dis- to discuss the um, to go from saying there's no such thing as cultural appropriation within the black community to say, okay, well, you know what. There is uh, a time when that's bad, and here it is. It's from Black Americans appropriate from Jamaicans. It just seems very, very weird. I don't know. Right. Yeah, it's. Uh, um, I I don't know whether it was intended to be like a spoof of like how over the top uh, Black Americans will go when they're like hard up for cash, or if it was supposed to be a spoof of like, uh, like like uh, West Indian propriety. But it was funny that the character who was saying that her friend's accent was just so bad and that she was appropriating her culture. Well, her mother in the show is, is Jasmine Guy. Jasmine Guy is, I mean, to my knowledge, Jasmine Guy is a black American. I don't know that she has any Caribbean background, but um, the character that she was playing was this woman's mom. And Jasmine Guy cannot do, I don't know if she's supposed to be Jamaican. She can't do a Jamaican accent. She definitely can't do a West Indian accent, period. So it was funny that the same thing that she was lecturing her friend about, like, on the metal the accent to get the job. Yeah. yeah, exactly. She's, she's, <laughs> she was making fun of her friend for, for imitating the accent for getting, to get the job. But then Jasmine Guy seems to have done the exact same thing to get the job, like, to get the role of her mother. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Do you know what would have been a good uh, 
joke. Like in ten seconds, I can think of a, already a more funny and more on the nose premise. It would have been funnier if one of the four girls, based on what you just described, if one of the four girls is a struggling actress and she's black American and she can't get work. Yeah even doing black American stuff, it keeps losing to foreign-born black people. So then she goes into the audition uh, pretending to be foreign to play black American. Then she goes back to her own voice and all the same people who used to uh, kind of, uh, you know, dismiss her are suddenly like, that's the best uh, New York accent I've ever heard. Or, wow, you really nailed the American accent, but she's just talking like herself. And she starts getting, like, work by pretending. That, I think, would be a more interesting... uh, way to have a story about a black American uh, appropriating West Indian culture. Like she was appropriating it to get work playing her own people. Like that I think would be kind of a funny commentary that ties into something that happens in the real world. Cause what you describe is something that does not happen in the real world at all. And it's bizarre. And uh, I just want to say real quick, if you want to talk at any point, you can start raising your hand to be in the queue now. And um, yeah, there's no, you don't have to wait for us to stop talking. You can start announcing to be in the queue. And Well, uh, we do have uh, somebody that's that's hopped up into the queue. So if we want to take a, a question from him. Oh, yeah, that'll be great. And, and before um, we take the question from Imran, I just want to explain why Alice uh, Siebold ties into this. And it's... Uh, I find it interesting that in one week we have a story, a horrible story about something that a white feminist uh, and the prosecutors did. And then we have this barbershop scene that the writers of the show are claiming is based on real life. And I just find it interesting that the one thing that a lot of people, whether it's um, white DAs, uh, white feminists or these black creatives uh, agree on is that black men are a terror. And I just kind of wonder, like, you know, where do black men go, you know, in the media to get any type of sympathetic, um, you know, if even like the so-called activists and the woke people... You're, jo- you're joking, right? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that doesn't I meant to talk about how can we make Chewbacca real, you know, at this point. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know about all that. Yeah, but let me uh, have Imran on... As soon as I figure out how to do it. Do, uh, yeah, Imran, what you got to do is uh, uh, hit the microphone button hey, on the lower right hand corner. There you go. Uh, there we go. How's can you hear going, me? Man? Yeah, we can hear you yo, pretty well. Yo, it's, it's, it's Hansy from uh, Twitter. Oh, hey. Oh, Hansy, how's it going? What's going on? No, yeah, yeah. Listen, I I didn't want to come to your time. I, I never get. I, I talked to Leslie. I, I talked to Leslie quite a bit. I never really get to talk to Andre or or, or Trevor that much. And I just want to like. I I just want to say like I, I appreciate the information you guys put out because here's the thing. When when I was like younger and for like a, lo- a good portion of my life, I used to be like one of those. Like I'm Pakistani, so I should be one of those like minorities where like. I would go through my quote-unquote lived experience, and and as being a dumbed-down guy, I, I can try to explain. Because you guys seem to be like you you guys like know your shit from the beginning. So as a dumbed-down guy, I, I can explain a little bit. Like because I know it, it, it. I don't think people communicate properly, especially online, obviously. So with me, it's like when I used to buy into the systems narrative of like you know the the, the white narrative, like the default systemic stuff. Whenever I would be around my own community, I would always think that my community was like so fucked up and I wanted to be a part of the 
you know, the picket fence family type of deal, whatever. And then when you would put out verbiage that's a system verbiage, people back then didn't, like, if they knew better, they wouldn't really explain to you if you're too dumbed down because they, they probably figured you're too far gone. So I would always think that, oh, they're just getting mad and emotional at me, and I am actually of, of, of I'm actually right. And it actually fucked me over because then I became like the token on the Howard Stern show, essentially. So I like that's my perspective on it. But like because I have guys like you kind of like, you know, explain like how this goes on in different communities, I, I appreciate the information you guys put out. Much appreciated. Well, appreciate. It's always worth to hear from you. Yeah, thank you so much. And I I, I just want to say that and I, I enjoy all your guys' tweets. You guys are really good dudes. I watch your streams too, Trevor. You're you're a good dude. So I just wanted to just leave that in there. And yeah, yo, listen, I've been to I've been to black barber shops. They seem like lovely places. I, I don't know what the what the whole hubbub is, but <laughs> well, but, they were turning it they were turning it down for you, but once you left, they just started raping again. So <laughs> that's how it goes. <laughs> That's cool. I just wanted to say what up to you guys. I enjoy your work, and I'll just listen in the in the queue. But I just wanted to say what up to you guys. I never get to talk to you guys that often, so I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, much appreciated. Thank you. All right, thank you. Uh, I was gonna take some time because this is a pretty short article. It will take like no time to read it. But I was going to read the um, article about the Alice Siebel thing, so people know what it is. And it's a pretty quick, it's a pretty quick read. I'll just do it right now. And then after this, you know, if you want to talk about the Alice Siebel thing, if you want to talk about uh, the show Harnum and barbershops, or you just want to talk about something else as far as uh, how normalized these kind of images are, that, like how everyone seems to agree on this one uh, topic, then, you know, by all means, jump in. So here we go. This is from CNN. He spent years in prison for the rape of author Alice Siebold, the subject of her memoir, Lucky. A judge just exonerated him. This is from November 25th. For decades throughout his years in prison, and even after he was released, Anthony Broadwater insisted he was innocent of the rape of the Lovely Bones author, Alice Siebold, a crime she described in her memoir, Lucky. Convicted in 1982, Broadwater spent more than 16 years in prison. He was denied parole at least five times because he would not admit to a crime he didn't commit, according to his attorneys. And he passed two lie detector tests. Broadwater, 61, tried five times to get the conviction overturned. And even after he was released, he didn't give up. But it didn't happen until Monday when New York State Supreme Court Justice Gordon Cuffey vacated the rape conviction and other counts related to it. The Onondaga County District Attorney joined in a motion to vacate the conviction. Siebel described the rape, which happened when she was a freshman at Syracuse University in 1981, in painstaking detail in her memoir. It was published in 1999, the year after Broadwater's release from prison. Almost five months after she was raped, Siebel saw Broadwater on the street in Syracuse. He reminded her of the rapist, and she reported the encounter to police, according to Broadwater's attorney's affirmation. But later, she failed to identify Broadwater in a police lineup. Broadwater was convicted on two pieces of evidence, Siebold's account, a cross-racial identification since the author is white and Broadwater is black, and the analysis of a piece of hair that was later determined to be faulty, his attorneys wrote. He visited his mother's grave for the first time after spending 43 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit. I don't understand that part. Um, 
what is that? Oh, I don't know. Uh, research has found, quote, research has found that the, eye, the risk of eyewitness identification is significantly increased when the witness and the subject are of different races, end quote, the affirmation stated. After the hair analysis in 2015, quote, the FBI testified that microscopic hair analysis contained errors in at least 90% of the cases the agency reviewed, end quote, according to the attorney's news release. So this is a type of identification that has proven to have 90% uh, failure rate. We now know that the testimony of the forensic scientists stemmed from a largely debunked forensic approach to hair microscopy, the affirmation stated. In Lucky, Siebold wrote that, quote, a detective and a prosecutor told her after the lineup that she picked out the wrong man and how the prosecutor deliberately coached her into rehabilitating her misidentification, end quote, according to the affirmation. CNN has reached out to Siebold and her publishing company multiple times per comment. The unreliability of the hair analysis and the conversation between the prosecutor and Siebold after the lineup would probably have led to a different verdict if it had been presented at trial, the attorney said. Quote, I won't study these proceedings by saying I'm sorry, District Attorney William Fitzpatrick said in the courtroom. That doesn't cut it. This should not have happened. End quote. Broadwater broke down in tears when the judge announced the decision. Quote, when the district attorney spoke to me, his words were so profound, so strong, it shook me, Broadwater told CNN on Wednesday. Quote, it made me cry with joy and happiness because a man of this magnitude would say what he said on my behalf. It's, it's beyond whatever I can say myself. End quote. After his release, Broadwater remained on the sex offender list. He described how the conviction had ruined his life. He struggled to find work after getting out of jail when employers found out about his criminal record. Quote, I did what I could do, and that was just, you know, creating work for myself, doing landscaping, tree removal, hauling, cleanouts, he said. His wife wanted children, but, quote, I wouldn't bring children in the world because of this. And now we're past days. We can't have children, end quote. Broadwater told reporters after the court hearing. The couple met in 1999, about a year after he was released from prison, he told CNN. After the first date, he gave her the transcripts and other documents from his case, telling her to read them and decided she wanted to be with him. She believed me and gave me more strength, he said. I just wanted a better quality of life, but I could never get a better quality of jobs. Part of the reason Broadwater's attorneys, J. David Hammond and Melissa Swartz, got involved in the case is thanks to Tim Muccianti, who was involved in a project to develop a film adaptation of Lucky. Mucciani, quote, had his doubts that the story was the way it was being portrayed in the film, end quote, said Hammond, one of Broadwater's attorneys, which led him to hire a private investigator who was associated with their law firm. It didn't take long digging around that we realized, okay, there's something here, said Hammond. He and Swartz listened to the transcript of the trial and found, quote, serious legal issues, unquote, which prompted him to bring a motion, he said. Hammond and Swartz are at least the fifth set of lawyers he, ha he hired to help with this case, Broadwater said. I never gave up. I could never, ever give up and live under these conditions. I was going to do everything I could to prove my innocence, he said. Days after the judge's decision, Broadwater said, it feels so surreal. I'm still soaking in it. I'm kind of like afraid in a sense. I'm so happy. After Siebold, Broadwater said he would like an apology. Quote, I sympathize with her, what happened to her, he said. I just hope there's a sincere apology. I would accept it. 
I'm not bitter or have malice uh, toward her. And that's the end of the article. The, the part about the 43 years for a murder didn't commit, I don't know what that's about. That's a, I think it's some weird typo in the article or in the. Oh, it's a, no, it's a, if you, if you go to the website, it's like a related article. It's like an ad for a different article. Oh, okay. So you know what? I printed out the reader version of the article, so it probably removed the um, formatting. So that's probably what happened. Okay. So yeah, ignore that, 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 that sentence. It's a link to another article. Uh, have you, by the way, uh, checked out anything about the lawyer or the, uh, the executive producer, Timothy Mucianti, who, uh, was able to, uh, to, to basically bring about the overturning of that conviction? Cause I was talking to, uh, uh Noah Cullen about this, uh, a week, a week or so back. And if you look into this guy's past, he's like a, he's like a, uh, like a Cullen brothers character, like a, like a scammer with a heart of gold that like was just like a, a, a complete fucking failure for most of his life. And then finally stumbled on something good to do with, you know, something good to do for somebody else. So yeah, in uh, July of 1992, uh, this, uh, I, I found a couple of articles uh, talking about his, uh, you know, his, his, his past as a, uh, a scammer and, and a convicted, uh, a convicted fraudster. But yeah, 1992, um, the lawyer convicted as a leading figure in an international condoms for chicken scam has temporarily lost his license to practice in Michigan and faces a federal lawsuit in Detroit, but his attorney predicts he will be vindicated. Timothy Mucciante was convicted of federal fraud charges in New York last month. He was accused of persuading three men, including diet doctor Stuart Berger, to invest $25,000 each in the scheme to buy 2 million condoms and 2 million surgical gloves in England, then swap them for Russian chickens and sell the poultry in Saudi Arabia. U.S. Attorney Nancy Northrup said it was a phony deal. The Attorney Discipline Board automatically suspended Mochianti's law license. He could face disbarment. But his attorney, Brian Leggio, said he will appeal the convictions and is confident of his success. Mochianti was found guilty on 15 of 22 counts. And then, skip forward to 2002, the FBI announced Friday that uh, Timothy Mochianti, 43, pleaded guilty to one count of securities fraud after he placed purchase orders to buy more than $20 million in government securities, knowing he didn't have the money to pay for them. The transaction caused Utah-based Silence Bank to lose more, more than $430,000, according to the FBI. The government alleged Mojante engaged in a practice commonly known as free-riding, where a person orders securities in the hopes that the price will rise before he has to pay for them. If the price rises, the securities can be sold at a profit before the original purchase payment is due. In this case, the price dropped, leaving Zion's Bank to cover the loss. And that's, that's, that's the dude who, you know, he, he came across just the one thing that he could not abide, which was an actual crime. Like, it seems to me like a guy who makes his makes his living just fleecing and absolutely soaking the rich would be the perfect person to see, uh, to, to see like, a, a poor human being that was railroaded into prison and say, that's not right, I've got to do something about this. And in a weird way, he... Uh, being a con man himself, maybe, I mean, because that was basically a con, what, what happened in that trial. Like, he, like he could recognize the uh, yeah. a, a, a bullshit uh, lie when he sees it, you know, also. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly, exactly like, what he said. To find out a bullshit. Oh, okay. yeah, uh, that's, yeah, that's exactly what he said, because he was reading the memoir uh, for the book and the her description and of what happened with the misidentification, where she misidentified this uh, person, uh, she said that 
it was suspect number. There was a lineup, and she said it was suspect number four. But this person, Anthony Broadwater, was actually five. And so the cops basically coached her into lying and explaining away uh, that mistake. Um, and that's a, a big reason why he ended up uh, being convicted. And the producer, when he read this, he was like, this is bullshit. And then also what weirded him out, strangely enough, was the fact that when they were working on the movie, at a certain point, the director started to oh, they were going to have a black actor play uh, the alleged rapist. Right. And he the black actor decided to drop out at a certain point because he said, I feel like this is going to make. It more he literally say, I feel like this is going to get black men killed. I'm per- putting out there in the world that black men are rapists and dangerous. So I feel like this is going to get black men killed. So he quit. And then the director was like, all right, we're just going to change the race. We're just going to make it a white person. And then this Muchiachi guy say, well, wait a minute. If that's what, if it, that's what actually happened, why would we change uh, the race? So he just got offended about that. And then he started looking into it, hired a private investigator and the PI basically found out that uh, the cops, man, I, I mean, you, oh, you really just need to read the book with an open mind to understand. Because she, Alex Siebel lays out how this guy was railroaded in the book herself. But I, I, but the thing I, I assume most people who saw this book before, well, they right. thought there was physical evidence. So even if he got railroaded and mis- she misidentified him, there was physical evidence tying him to it. So maybe it was still it was true. A, but we it was thought, a, it was an end justified a mean kind of thing, basically. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah, I, I would imagine. So most people reading that book, they would say, you go in, you would know that, oh, this person has been convicted and there was physical evidence. Even if this and this technicality weren't right, at least we know that the original person. So I think that's what most people think. But Muchiachi actually had a different uh, a perspective on Seabold. He says he doesn't blame the 18-year-old Seabold, but she does blame the one who wrote the book at 40 because she should have known uh, that this didn't add up. Yeah, like, I was I, I was kind of two minds about it, right? Like, on the one hand, like, this is Carolyn Bryant all over again. But the difference is Carolyn Bryant knew she was lying at the time. So it's, it's, it's one thing for someone who's just been the victim of one of the most traumatic crimes you can go through uh, to essentially be inveigled and coerced by the police into picking the wrong person out of a lineup because they just wanted to wrap the case up. They didn't really care which black man went to jail. But by the time you're 40 years old and you know that that was your experience and you continue to go ahead and write the memoir anyway, and it's like, if you, ha- if you had a feeling or you had like some doubts about the person that you were pressed into picking out of a lineup, like you had 20-odd years to reconcile yourself to that fact and his life has been fucking ruined behind something that he didn't do. So then my question is, like, at what point do you, at what point does what happened to you as a victim then begin to bleed into how you've managed to victimize somebody else? I mean, and when you look at this, the specific of this case, it's really, because it's based, first of all, Every cop, I, I, I watch a lot of true crime because I actually want to know what cops actually do. And you don't find that out when I listen to true crime. Every cop knows that a eyewitness, eyewitness testimony is unreliable, especially cross-racial. 
And basically what she said was after she was visually assaulted in public, horrible story, she said months later she saw the guy who did it, even though she was assaulted in a dark alley. This is a different, I mean, by someone from a different race. And she said, I saw him on the street and I, that was him. That was him. I, and she went to the cops and told him that. Now, I think most people know that cops are not very keen on helping rape victims or listening to their stories. And especially when they know that eyewitness testimony is unreliable, that the fact that they went so far as to lie to her and say, oh, no, the person you identify is friends with the actual rapist. They look alike. They come in together. The fact that they fabricated the hair evidence is just so bizarre because, like, what did the cops... Right. Like, the cops could have blown her off like they do, like most uh, rape victims who uh, go to them. It was it's just a very strange story because they really pushed her and they immediately, when she misidentified the person, the cops didn't go, oh, fuck, she, we, she picked the wrong person. They went, they actually made up a lie to tell her to convince her to, uh, to basically, uh, to lie on the stand uh, and identify the right, uh, quote unquote, guy. It's a very strange story strange case but it is mostly on the cops that initial thing they really did gaslight her into uh misidentifying this guy but that's all stuff that anybody who's spent time researching true crime uh which she has alex seabold has because her uh, book the lucky uh the lucky bones is based on another real case she should have she, I think it's fair to say that she should have been more conscious of it. And also the editor of the books uh, and the publisher of the book there because she really does lay the worst evidence yeah. against the cops is in her book. And I'm I'm shocked that they didn't ask more questions. Yeah, I was shocked when I saw the article and the excerpts from her book. And I was like, wait a minute. She actually said this and uh, it didn't raise any flags. But. I think one thing has to do with uh, what you said, that people didn't know how unreliable the uh, actual uh, forensic evidence was. But I also think, you know, to some level, like, you know, people do think, like, I think even a lot of white liberals think, oh, of course, um, you know, not all black men are rapists, you know, but there's a part of them that also thinks, yeah, but, you know, a lot of them are more than anyone else. So uh, it's not far-fetched either, even though they won't actually say that. So I think... There is a part of people that thinks like, you know, this is what um, black men do. And that's why I think even though they're on the surface, two totally disparate topics, uh, you know, it's very interesting how people try to tell you that representation matters uh, when it comes to so many things that are positive. But, you know, when it's time to, uh, you know, portray black men badly, especially other black people doing it, uh, now it's lived experience and it's okay, you know. But, I mean, Alice Siebold could have been arguing lived experience, you know. She could have been like, hey, my lived experience, uh, I got raped by a black man, so that makes my accusations and my insistence on the identification, um, you know, fine. And if it, and racists have been using the lived experience thing forever. They just didn't have a trendy academic jargon for it, you know. But the, how many times has a racist person said, like, you know, I was mugged by a black person, you know, and that makes it okay for me to, um, you know, tweet about interracial crime all day or, you know, I was raped by a black person, so it's okay. And, you know, people always say, oh, you can't stereotype a whole group of group of people based on your bad experiences with one or two of them. But, 
if you hire um, a black person to do just that, now it's bulletproof and it's called lived experience. And I just find that so in- so interesting. Yeah. Well, here, here, okay. The thing is, too, like it's not. Uh, it wasn't even just um, the, uh, the 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 person who committed the rape and got away with it, and it wasn't just. Uh, the person who was prosecuted falsely and spent 16 years in prison, but, like, there's a whole lot of shit that happens in this book that's, like, I mean, Seabull does seem to be horrified by it as well, but I wonder, like, at what point do people start to read, like, at what point are people reading this um, out of prurient interest and not out of, uh, like, out of empathy? Like, I'll give you one passage, right? So uh, this is where Siebold said that she um, saw the, uh, the, the the person that she was positive had committed the rape against her. And so she calls Syracuse police. And uh, so uh, campus police show up. Uh, sorry, no, uh, yeah, Sy- Syracuse police show up. It wasn't campus. It was Syracuse police show up. They start questioning her, and, and they're asking her, like, you know, uh, what does this person look like? How tall was he? All right. Well, we'll take the sketch that you made. We'll make uh, copies of it. We're going to send an APB out, and then they went and basically just like picked out a couple of black kids, like at, like just at random, right? So uh, I'll, I'll read a, a passage from it. Um, the it was six men in, in a uniform escorting us. We left the building. Ken and I got in the back of a squad car. That's that's for friend Ken that was with her, uh, with one officer in the front. I don't remember this man's name, but I remember his anger. We're going to get this puke, he said. Rape is one of the worst crimes. You'll pay. He started the engine and turned on the red and blue flashing lights of his squad car. We rode down to Marshall Street, only a few blocks away. So they basically go to, like, the black side of town. Look carefully, the officer said. He maneuvered his squad car with a manhandling agility I would later recognize in New York cabbies. Um, while we drove up and around Marshall Street a few times, the officer told me about his 17-year-old niece, just an innocent girl. She'd been gang raped. Ruined, he said. Ruined. He had his billy club out. He started smacking the empty seat with it. Um, I saw no rapist. I said this. I suggested leaving, looking at the mugshots down at the station, but the officer wanted his release and he was going to get it. He braked hard on one final pass down on Marshall Street. There. There, he said. What about those three? I looked and knew immediately. Three black students. You could tell by the way they were dressed. They were also tall. Too tall to be my rapist. No, I said. Let's just go. They're troublemakers, he said. You stay here. He got out of the squad car in a hurry and chased after them. He had his billy club in his hand. Ken began to suffer some version of the panic I was familiar with. His breathing was labored. He wanted to get out. What's he going to do, he said. He tried the door. It had been locked automatically. This is where criminals as well as victims drove. I don't know. Those guys aren't even close. Um, I'm going to skip forward just a little bit, like past some of the uh, the exposition here. Uh, I wanted the policeman to come back in. I sat in the car with Ken whimpering beside me. Um, I, I, uh, he, he put my head between my knees so the people on the outside of the car looking in would be met with the back of the victim and I listened for the sounds I knew were taking place in the alley someone was being beaten I knew that as truly as, truly as I knew anything it wasn't him so it's like what gets described in this book is not just uh, you know one person that commits a, a rape and gets away with it and another person that gets prosecuted falsely but like peppered throughout the course of the book are just like the uh, like the underlying sort of like racial apparitions that's present in the forefront of every white person's mind and the way that they deal with them. So the book isn't even just about um, 
you know, the, the, uh, the rape that's committed against Ebold. It's also about, like, the, the collective subconscious of white people, um, where black people loom in the back of their imaginations as this existential threat, but they deal with the threat by basically, like, choosing people to commit violence against under the assumption that at any moment these people can commit violence against them. So it's just like a, a preemptive thing. That was what struck me most about the book. And I think that was also in some ways present in that book, The Lovely Bones, like that same, that same view of rape that could come from anywhere. And I, 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 I guess the tough part for me was in producing this movie, or at least in, in the, uh, the course of like the movie being adapted for film, if that was what the real story was, was like white as existential fear. How could you possibly change the race of the, the character that committed the rape? Like, how could you possibly do that and then maintain any semblance of the story? So the whole thing was like, it was, it was destined to fail to begin with. And I'm kind of wondering how it is that Siebel let it go on so long without coming forward and saying, yeah, I, I, I can't in good conscience stand behind this picture. Like, there's something seriously wrong with what happened to me, but also with what happened to the man that went to prison for the rape that I don't believe he committed. I guess it's kind of like a sunk cost trap in that um, when you have that much invested in it and so many years pass by, not trying to be overly sympathetic to her, but I, you know, um, in general, like when people think a lot of um, investment and resources into something to kind of admit that it wasn't, I mean, she probably got a lot of closure from, from the arrest. Uh, she had a memoir that I'm not saying that the rape was good for her at all, but it, she did get a successful memoir that was related to this kind of triumphant story. So it's like that invalidates and almost creates more guilt. You know, the, the fact that you uh, had this horrible thing happen to you, then you at least were able to get some kind of, um, financial recuperation from the bad thing that happened to you. And you were able to at least partially turn a horrific thing into, uh, you know, some kind of financial success and to find out, okay, that narrative I told myself isn't true. Like I didn't turn lemons into uh lemonade. I just gave more lemons to someone else and, and, and F them up. Yeah. Uh, there's probably a lot of investment in the original narrative that, she had that she just couldn't really allow herself to entertain against it. Now that doesn't really let her off the hook because doing the right thing is always going to be, to be hard, you know, but I'm just trying to understand maybe uh, at least a partial answer to your question that doesn't quite let her off the hook either, you know? Yeah, I, it's trying to understand like what she thought later and the fact that you you would go back and make uh this movie after you already done the lucky bones and adapted uh, the lovely bones and adapted now you're making the memoir of it like you're you asked a question like because she does talk is very open about her racism and how she was afraid of black men and it, it seems probably obvious that that mood that, that version of the movie would have left all that stuff out and would have just been a story about it will be you know the lifetime narrative of 
a woman was attacked. She was able to, and she was able to get justice, and that would have been the end of it. But the book is really is like quite raw uh, from her perspective about uh, her racist feelings towards black men after this assault, and she's understanding of it. I mean, she she doesn't try to hide it. I actually, you know, commend her for not you know smoothing down those edges and including that in the book and including the evidence against the cops uh, in the book. But it's just like she, but in writing that book, she didn't seem to like learn, take it, learn anything from it. And none of the people who read it seemed to learn anything. So when uh, you said Q, like, what did people get out of it? Like, I have to imagine that most of the people, a lot of the people who read this book read it and nodded along to some of the racist parts. Like, I, I, that's what I mean. Yeah. Like, is like, I, I, I have a hard time, like, especially where it comes to true crime. Like, I think part of the addiction to true crime is people gaslighting each other into believing that their most prurient interests are somehow like political advocacy. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think that for the most part, this, uh, this genre is born out of some overarching concern or like trying to get to the heart of a story or make a story more understandable. Uh, I, I, I want to add, yeah. add something to that idea real quick. Is uh, I was yeah. a big true crime fan, but I like the investigation discovery type of crap. And what I like about that stuff is that it's so much more honest about being like just very purient and everything. But when I first tried serial, I could not take the sanctimonious self importance. Oh my god! Of, of yeah. It. And, yeah. and I think it's important to differentiate those two types of true crime because. The old school investigation discovery stuff. I mean, they have names like Southern Fried Murder. That's a real title of one of them. Like, and it's just murder in the South. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, yeah, it doesn't pretend to be anything yeah. um, more like, yeah, 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 more important or, yeah, yeah. shows called like Wives with Knives and, you know, all types of great, horrible <laughs> names. And when I heard Serial, I just could not enjoy it. I'm like, this is just slow, boring, pretentious. Uh, uh, it's NPR shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it's, and it's the same purient shit, but this. It's it's like with everything with liberals. It it's just something that makes them feel like they're being made aware, and that it like it's for the type of liberals who think that shopping at Whole Foods is a vague type of activism. You know, they can't tell you exactly who it benefits. And I'm sorry, I just wanted to interject with that. Please continue. No, no I, I just like I, I kind of feel like the way that uh, somebody like Leslie listens to true crime is just not the same way that a lot of fans of true crime will listen to true crime. I think that. Uh, what people will tell each other is just like, oh my gosh, did you hear about like you know this particular murder? It's just it's so it's so scary that somebody went through that, and I, I I kind of feel like that's just like the surface level talk, like it's a game of liars poker because what they both subconsciously know underneath is like, wow, that was really fucking titillating, wasn't it? And I, I feel like that's how you know when you don't have fear of anything really, it's like. They don't walk around with the same kind of fear that we walk around with. So when you're walking around for the most part, like oblivious to that feeling of fear, you have to like do things to make yourself feel something. And I, I kind of feel like today's true crime fills in that niche. And, and, I, and I, I just feel like reading a book like that, I it made me feel sick to my stomach. But I'm, I'm thinking to myself, like, who is this kind of book written for? And, and who's the audience? And, and what, are they, what are they getting out of this? Because I, I just don't feel like what I was getting out of it, reading Lucky, was what most people were reading from it. 
Um, out of the three of us, I'm the only one who has not even skimmed the book, so I can't personally, <laughs> personally uh, weigh it's, in. No, I I, I, uh, I picked it up. I, I, it was, it was uh, Leslie that, um, I think I tweeted something about it a couple of weeks ago, and then I saw Leslie uh, post a link to it. I was like, you know what, let me just go ahead and read this book and, and see what this whole thing was about. And it, it actually made me feel sick reading it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a terrible story. There's no happy stuff about it, but that existence of the book and, like, that Netflix was going to produce this as a major motion picture and it just makes me think, like, so what is this yeah. guy going to get out of it? Well, I know the producer, uh, the producer who called this out, he is making a documentary about this story. So <laughs> I yeah. hope... And he's, like, he's, like, constantly tweeting out, like, you know, uh, any headline... That talks about him being the the one that cracked this case open and helped this man get exonerated. Like on the one hand, it's like you know you should take some credit for it for being the one person to start asking questions and actually get justice for this man. But at the same time, there's it, a point where it starts to feel a little bit self indulgent, where it's like, okay, so you finally redeemed yourself. You know what I mean? Yes, and that's exactly what he's doing. But I have to take off a little bit early, but thank y'all uh, so much. And, hey, if you're hanging out on call-in, I'll be doing a show around 10.30. Uh, Q's going to be there. We're going to be watching the Drake-Kanye uh, live stream. I'll start a little bit early. Uh, but, uh, Q, you can come in when the uh, when the show actually starts. I'll just uh, talk some bullshit before then. But thank y'all so much for listening. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, have a good one. All right, man. All right. Uh, see you soon. Thanks, thanks for this. And... Also, if you're in this room, like, feel free. I think there's a sharing button. Feel free to share uh, this room on your social medias or whatever. You know, let people know we're up in here. But also, um, does anybody actually want to talk? Because, uh, yeah, I mean, this is a call. Yeah, if anybody has questions, yeah. I mean, yeah, feel free to, to hop on up and, uh, and share your thoughts. And it doesn't have to be, like, you know, heavy Alice Thiebold talk. If you just, <laughs> even after all that, if what you want to talk about is... Stupid scenes like the one in uh, Harlem, like by all means, yeah. <laughs> or, or if you, or if you want to, or if you want to cut T's ass for uh, not having watched Cowboy Bebop up until this past week, I mean that that's something that man when you when you admitted that out loud, I was like, man, what the hell? You watch oh, you watch oh, the shittiest anime, and oh, you will tell me about it, but you oh, haven't even given that one a watch. I will make it even worse. Uh, I didn't want to admit this on Twitter, but after like three episodes, I was kind of bored with Cowboy Bebop. It's the most beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful looking. It's beautiful. The animation, I cannot believe that's TV anime. Because usually TV anime is a lot of repeating cells and bad frame rates and everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like the backgrounds, the lack of repeating cells. The music is great, but I mean, the story is just kind of boring to me. I mean, like after like three or four capers, I'm like, uh, okay, so yeah. No, I mean, it, there there was a couple of episodes where it does start to like. How did you watch all the way through it, or did you give up? Uh, I watched about four episodes, and it wasn't bad. I just didn't really feel like grip. Like I got to watch the next one. It felt like a chore to get. I found it. Nah, did you get to did you get to the episode with uh, Pierre Lefou, the uh, the the dude that had been experimented on, and he. Um, he was basically like a super powered clown. Oh, that sounds cool. I didn't get to that yet. You know, I'm, I mean, I figure it must get pretty good if people love it so much. But yeah, the first, uh, I mean, I got to the point where they were in a casino and they got Faye there. And the fight scenes are really good, but it's just nothing really grips me yet as far as the characters, you know. And it was just, 
it was competent and well done, but I find it easier to binge on Curb Your Enthusiasm. I started Curb Your Enthusiasm for the first time oh uh, ever as well this week. And <laughs> I, I find myself going back to that more than Cowboy <laughs> Bebop, believe it or not. Yeah. All right. Hang on just one second. Uh, Jason, come on up. Yeah. Uh, give me one second, T. Okay, cool. Hey. So I just invited Jason not to speak, so I think he just has to accept. Or oh, um, okay, there we go. Yeah, this one. Our, our, uh, our, there are sheets have to be washed. Wait, so um, you put me on the on just the put, dais? Put them in our bed for now. Oh, oh wait, does Q? Do you think you're muted? I don't know because I hear you talking, but I don't think you realize you're not that you're not muted. Okay, okay, sorry, Jason. Go ahead. No, I'm I'm asking. It seems that you elevated me to the dais. Am I correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, you're speaking now. Is that what you mean? Well, I mean, it looked like you put me on a platform of speakers, not just that I called in. I don't, you know, I didn't want to impose my oh, presence oh. for that long. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, I just realized which Jason this is. Oh, you know what? I'm glad I, it was an accident, but I'm glad I put you up here. You, you belong on this. Also, I've been trying to put you and Q in contact for a while, and I was going to send you an email, a second introductory email to introduce each other, because Q wanted to do something with you, and he asked me to send a second introductory email. So this is uh, uh, Q, this is Jason England. We were talking the other day about... Um, oh, yeah, I know who you're talking about, man. I'm so sorry. Like, So the the last like six or seven weeks has just been absolute like hell for me, and I, I sincerely apologize. Uh yeah, I've just had like way too much on my plate, and I've got a hell of a lot of emails to uh, to catch up on. But I, I did mean to to talk to you because uh, I I remember T sent that introduction a while back, and I was like, I really got to talk to this dude. Like, there's a lot for us to discuss, and I'm actually writing a book that I think uh, is up your alley. So yeah, as soon as I can, I'll, I'll get back to you. Probably will be in the new year because uh, I just have a, a lot of stuff to. Uh, to take care of before the end of the year. One of them is like actually walking down the aisle. Uh, but oh, after that's all said and done. Wait, 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 wait. Where did he go? He, he just he just bounced. What happened? Oh yeah, he yeah he took off. Yeah. Uh, he must, I guess, I guess... He probably just he just dropped by to be like, hey yo, this dude this dude ain't shit. He hasn't he hasn't <laughs> returned my calls. Nothing. Oh man, man. No, no. I'm sure that's a technical difficulty. I'm sure he come back. Jason's hilarious too. If you listen to the podcast, he has come on the podcast. Uh, before as one of our like favorite favorite guests uh well damn i gotta find out let me text them and see what happened uh but in the meantime does anyone else want to want to speak yeah oh there he is yeah he's back he's back uh so i'm gonna invite him to speak (laughs) yeah jason we thought you weren't buying what q was selling man you're like f that uh excuse i'm out i didn't even hear his excuse Oh, <laughs> as, as soon as I even tried to join you, the NSA shut me down, man. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I was trying to say to you, I was, I was trying to say to you that, uh, like, I've, like the last like six or eight weeks has just been a hell of a lot for me. Um, like, there's like a whole bunch of like business stuff and career stuff that I was managing, and then like I've got a, a wedding in a couple of weeks, and then like Christmas, and the whole family would be down. It's just been, it's like everything snowballed on me since around like september october so yeah my sincere apologies it, it, it was just like a lot of stuff got away from me um and i did want to be in touch with you because i uh, i'm actually in the middle of writing a book that i'm pretty sure 
we should have a conversation about based on some of the conversations that you and T have had and some of the stuff that I've seen from you. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, hey, no explanation needed, man. I'm just like, I'm, I'm too old to not understand that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Also, uh, I don't, I don't know what you know of uh, T and his uh, awful taste in anime, but I, I, <laughs> you're closer to him than I am. So please, like, if you care about your boy, please check on him. I'm not sure if Jason is an anime guy himself, so he might actually have worse taste than me. I don't know. <laughs> you can't. I can't have worse taste than you because I just simply have no taste. <laughs> I, I don't know anything about anime, man. I'm locked out of it. Okay, he was uh, he was making me watch this show uh, called Saint Seiya, and I remember um, I had like watched episodes of it a long, long time ago, and th- there's been like multiple iterations of this show, right? So I remember the last time that I had watched like the one of the more recent versions of it, I was like, I can't like this is just overdrawn but poorly produced garbage, and he's like, no, 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 you got to watch like the original one from the 1980s. It's so good. And I sat there, and I'm like, watching these episodes, I'm like, this is making no sense to me at all. The story is going oh, yeah, absolutely it, nowhere. It makes no sense, but it's, like, it's awesome. <laughs> okay. I, <laughs> that's, that's the kind of stuff you'll sit around and watch. Like, you'll sit around and watch, like, the most garbage content, and then come back and talk about it, which I guess, I mean, it works for you and your podcast, but don't inflict that on your friends. Oh, no, that, that, I mean, I don't want to make this anime hour, but that anime, because you ask about the anime, it's junk that knows it's junk. And I can really appreciate that. I mean, they just have like repeating animation cells over and over again and just people punching each other and over the top stuff. But it's like Cowboy Bebop is high quality, but there was just something kind of just too slow moving about it. Like, like say, say uh, like some insane person just threw everything against the wall and said, let's see what sticks, you know, and. I don't. I don't know. Like, I'm giving. I'm gonna give Cowboy Bebop another try, but I don't want to dwell on this. But yeah, if anybody wants to roast my horrible anime taste and that I'm not moved by Cowboy Bebop, by all means, uh, talk about that as well. But uh, Jason, I assume you want to come here to say something more important than you know my horrible anime taste. Oh, you know, I wish I came on with lofty ambitions. I just saw that you were talking about Harlem. Um, and, you know, as I have a history in East Harlem and all throughout Harlem, I'm intrigued. And uh, I saw you were talking about Seabold. And as you know, I have that background of having gone through the Iowa Writers Workshop and, and being somewhat entrenched for a while in the writing world while trying to avoid it. I was intrigued by both and I wanted to see what you had to say. I was just calling in to let you know, actually, that I was offended you didn't ask me to come talk. But then you immediately put me up on stage and I was like, well now I don't have a complaint. <laughs> I mean you can boot me back with the audience if you want. You know, it's all it's all good. I mean I mean um you missed the summary we were doing of the show Harlem. I didn't watch it like uh those clips I was telling uh you earlier because I was talking to you earlier and I was saying how I have a high tolerance for like hate watching stuff. I mean that's why this show is called Media Masochist but those clips were just too much for me. I when I saw the Jamaican accent clip, that was actually worse to me than the barbershop clip. It was just really bad. So um, Q Andre he found the sword, and so did Leslie before. I mean, and he was, and we were just talking about. I don't know if you saw when we talked about this part, but I was saying how I found it kind of interesting that they had that cultural appropriation story, but the appropriation was about like a black American appropriating. Uh, 
West Indian culture. I'm like, that's so weird because first for years we've been told by black creatives that there's no such thing as black cultural appropriation. But the one time you want to talk about it, you're going to lecture the people who are actually the more appropriated. Like, like, like you're going to have a story where supposedly it's, um, black Americans who do most of the appropriating. It just seems like so strange. And yeah. And what was funny was Q also said that within the story, the characters, there's a West Indian character whose mother is played by Jasmine Guy, and she's doing a horrible, uh, West Indian accent herself. So the same thing that they're lecturing about within story, they're actually doing anyway, which is having an American person play a West Indian person and doing it badly. So what is even the internal commentary about? Like it just makes the show doesn't make sense in several uh, levels. But I mean, I'm going to ask you this. How do you feel about when you visit Hardem um, these days? Like, Like the people that you see in this clip, do you feel like they represent the new Harlem, like like what Harlem is becoming. Uh, that's that's tough to say. Um, you know, East Harlem is very different from West Harlem at this point. Um, and I and I think that there's nuance to these areas in New York City, right? So, like, even if I tell you what my family is experiencing on 126 in Lexington, I think other people in other parts of West Harlem would be like, "Well, you're talking about this part of West Harlem, homeboy." Like. You still come up here. It's like this, you know, but East Harlem, um, they haven't really pushed as far into it. It's been a lot harder to get people out of like the MH and AK buildings. Uh, when last I went back, I think it was the same time that there was a headline. What's the guy's name from the New York Times? Charles Blow. Charles Blow had just written a piece that said um, the oh, city God. that never sleeps just got woke. It was about um, Adams winning the primary. Um, and he was talking about this sort of black renaissance in New York City. And the night before I saw that headline, I was out in front of my old building, 126 and Lex. And, you know, there was a baby stroller. I have footage I posted on, on Twitter of it because it was so striking. There was a baby stroller out in front of this iron rock fence, you know, iron rock gate in front of the projects. Uh, the only lights in total darkness were police lights on the block. Um, it was an empty baby stroller just in the middle, like an apocalyptic sort of set piece. Um, and you know, 126 and Lex, if you don't know the area, like that's right around the methadone clinic now. Uh, so you have a lot of fiends, like, you know, the zombie types in the day, men in wheelchairs, whipping their dicks out for piss in the middle of the day, people passed out on the sidewalk, a lot of crime. And it, it seemed like my old neighborhood was worse than it was when I was a teen and it was real bad then. So, um, so I'm not as familiar with the brunch set. Like I went up to um, the West side to meet my own boy last time I was in. And we went to one of those restaurants where, you know, they play, um, they play mint condition and keep sweating shit while you eat chicken and waffles or whatever. And, um, and bougie people hang out there. And, and that he was like, yeah, they love the brunch scene over here now, you know, and there's a lot of white people there. So like, it depends on where you go in Harlem, but the show, seems very dedicated like most of this content that comes out um it seems dedicated uh to producing um an idea of a black person who's never really lived or came of age in new york who's more palatable for uh i think white sensibilities and i just don't have interest in shows like that so it's really hard for me to watch that 
Um, one thing I was saying is that I don't get why even call the show Harlem. Like, why not just call it like you know, uh, uh, Black Sex in the City or something? Like, like it, it, like to use the name Harlem. Like, like one thing about Sex in the City, um, I feel like they went an extra step and said like you know the West Village and just made themselves the face of the West Village. We've been an extra level of presumption, like you know. Something about just calling yourself after a region just makes it seem like we're the definitive face of the region. And I think that's kind of what kind of annoys me the most. If they just called it like uh, 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 brunchers or something, you know, and they just, they just happen sure. to live in Harlem. Sure. You know, but yeah, that, that part I, I found sure. very strange. But um, Q is the one who actually had watched it. And do they, he, said, he said there's a class antagonism in it, right? Like, like they do have... Um, uh, can you think of any particular yeah. like, specific examples? Um, I mean, there was uh, there were scenes where like uh, characters were there was like there was one character uh, that like saw this dude that she liked, and I guess he was like with somebody else, but he was also like a bit of a baller character. So you know, she was like she was after him, and then he was like you know flirting with her and whatever. And it was funny that like uh, they had just been having a conversation about like uh, a bro- broke dudes. Um, there was another one that was like at a bar and I guess like she, she was like, at, she was at the, this bar and she was like bought her a drink. Uh, and then she like got up from her seat to go to the bathroom or something like that. And she like made a snipe character to another, another dude that was watching them. And I was just like, is that how, is that how people actually behave out in real life? Because I don't know anybody like that. Like if I'm, if I'm out with my friends and and I, I generally will go out with like a mixed group. I don't usually go out with like all guys or all girls. I'll go out with like a bunch of people and I see how they like talk to each other and interact. And I'm like, black people don't talk to each other like this. Like a lot of this is, I think is like, like uh, internalized thoughts and stuff that people don't normally say out loud that they kind of like sprinkle into the script Cause it's them just sort of getting away with the kind of stuff that they wouldn't actually say to people in real life. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, for sure. And uh, we have uh, Rennie in the queue. You can unmute whenever you want. Uh, I already set you up to talk. Yo, what's going on? Hey, what's going on, man? What's up? Ain't shit, ain't shit. Um, I actually just came from the barbershop. Um, got my toxic field fuel. Quite literally, just came from the barbershop. Um. But no, nah, I was trying to... Uh, I'm very glad you got, you, got, you got your... I was going to say you got your toxic top up. Exactly. That's all I need. Yeah, I'm very, I'm very glad, you, know, you, I'm very glad you made it home safe, by the way. Thank you. For... <laughs> by the... Almost didn't. <laughs> you know, welcome, welcome to the barbershop. Get your fucking head chopped. <laughs> Basically. But um, now nah, I was listening in, and uh, I believe it was Jason who was just speaking. And I wonder how it is... Cause like I'm from I'm from a uh, DC, Southeast DC, and I'm wondering how it is to actually have a show where specifically like in your case you're actually from there. There's a show in uh, about Harlem, and I, I remember when I was in New York last, I think it was last year. Um, I was in Harlem, but I was um at a spot. You know, it was looked like it was being gentrified at at that point. But I wonder how it is to like watch a show, knowing that you know you were raised in that area, 
and just see it become so like um you know how they just like they misconstrue it and mischaracterize it because i know from my if there is a show that comes out about dc knowing the gentrification that's going on now that isn't characterized correctly i would yeah. be fucking upset knowing that i grew up yeah. in that city um during you know literally uh you know one of the most dire times in the crack epidemic it would really move me in a visceral way to see that shit so i definitely understand not wanting to watch it i just can't imagine yeah dc is crazy man i mean dc reminds me of the bay area because um i mean that might might sound weird but those are two places where i feel like the black scenes are so what they are they're so local that it's like they don't care about other culture like their culture is so vibrant they just have their own slang and they they never let any other slang intrude on it they have their own music they listen to with go-go and and, and local stuff like I always, I always really respected that about DC and the, the, just its own personality. I've always been intrigued by the Bay the same way. It's painful, um, but that's a lot of years. I mean, you know, the thing that that's funny, and I wrote this when I wrote about Jessica Krug. I said, you know, the thing that's funny about when she was performing her version of Afro Latina blackface or whatever is she was complaining about gentrification. And she was like 20 years late. And that's how I knew she was a phony. Like we're in the fifth stage, fifth wave of gentrification in Harlem. This was happening a long time ago. Um, so, I, you know, I, I went through that hurt a long time ago. I mean, um, my background is I used to be homeless in New York um, and we lived in a welfare hotel in Times Square back New Jack City era. This was one of the the hotels, the Holland, the Carter, those were like two of the major ones with the drugs and everything. And so I was up in Harlem in the housing projects with my cousin uh, getting away from Times Square because that's how bad it was. And to think of that, like the projects in East Harlem as a respite is really some grim shit. But it was for me going up there. Um, and so I've seen that area change and my family's all up in there. I've seen them be moved out. I had to go back to commit my mom, who was mentally ill when I was in grad school. And she was in Harlem in a hospital. And I had to walk from west to east. And this was in 2007, I think. And I saw back then already the cameras, the white people with the yoga mats, um, the, the classic businesses already boarded up. Um, and I remember, like, dead serious, like, having to see my mom like that, but also seeing that what I thought was a concrete thing was receding from me. I started weeping without knowing it. Like, you know, I walked like seven blocks and I felt my face and I was like, yo, I'm mourning already. And that's 2007. So like, um, I suppose I've made peace with the misinterpretation and misrepresentation of this to an extent. It hit me actually in the New York times when a former classmate of mine was writing about gentrification in New York city. My mother had 14 brothers and sisters, so we have a big family, half in Brooklyn, half in Harlem. She was writing about Brooklyn. I went to college with this woman. She's not from New York City. And I was like, wait a minute. <clears throat> what is it about the color of your skin that makes you think you are somehow exempt from being a gentrifier? Because when my aunts are in Fort Greene, where they've been for 30 years with this little shitty condos, these two condos on top of each other they bought across from the Fort Greene projects, when they had to suffer through some very rough times, low property values on that, and really difficult, dangerous conditions for their children, when you move in there as a black college student not from New York, 
you don't look different from a white person to them in terms of the role you play. For you to come turn around. I say that all. Yeah, and write about it in the New York Times. These people know better. They know that they could find somebody because they've gone to college with people like me. They know, they, they, I know the education they have. And this means that uh, much like many of their white classmates, they had their eyes uh, on these statues. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones reminds me of this. These statues constructed in their imagination to them. These, and they will do anything to actually make it a reality. You know, they want to be in print in the New York Times. They want to have their TV show. And they have, outside of performing it on Twitter, they have very little regard for the actual historical accuracy, the value, the humanity of black people in these places. And so I guess that it, like, made me sad at one point. But at this point, it just makes me disgusted. Um, and, and so I don't watch these shows because I don't want to be at the crib angry you know what i mean like i don't want to just be over here like yo this fucking bitch i'm gonna fuck her up like you know it's unhealthy like i have a pretty good life all things considered given where i came from and i want to keep that in mind and not walk around just like you know especially you know it hurts more when it comes from educated black people because it just feels like such a such a betrayal um so that's why it's tough for me to watch it Yeah, man. I I um I wasn't uh, born and raised in Brooklyn. I was in Queens, uh, but I moved to Bed Stuy like in the probably like two thousand or something. So I've been I lived in two thousand. I lived in Bed Stuy more than I lived in anywhere else. And one thing that's interesting is even though I'm from New York, um, people knew who everyone was in Bed Stuy, so people would just know that. I didn't grow up there. They just knew because they never saw me before. And people would still address everybody with, hey, Miss So-and-so, hey, Miss Shirley, hey, Miss this. Like, people, it was, um, you know, very, because where I lived before in Queens was, like, uh, Flushing and everything. And over there, like, people you're building knew you, but it was just uh, lots of big, big, big buildings. And one thing that's interesting about Bed-Stuy, like Bed-Stuy, because of all those brownstones and everything, it wasn't as population dense as you would think outside of the, you know, projects and everything. So people would really kind of know know each other. And there was a sense of community there. Like, you know, um, you would get to know people. But when I got there, people knew that I was uh, new there. And that's kind of gone. Like, it's very impersonal now. It's, it's just uh, transient people. It's just... Uh, even the black people are transient. They're just people who just kind of come in um, to just buy buy a brownstone and everything. But uh, yeah, it's like there's no real, I think that's a community except for people that have been here for like a really long time. But there's only a handful of them left. Like, honestly, on the block that I live on now, there's like a couple of buildings that I that are like Section 8. And those are like some of the only black people besides me who have been here, you know, in the area like, like forever. You know what I mean? And um, what's interesting is this guy from in my building from like Morehouse or something, he was living in my building. And there was uh, these longtime Bed-Stuy residents who own the, brown, own the brownstone. And they just keep this brownstone. And every single day, like the whole family is always at this brownstone 
And it's worth millions now, but it's like what Jason described. They were in this area, like, during the crack days and everything. And every day, like, some white people come up to um, these people when they're outside and try to offer them, like, cash to buy the building. And then uh, the guy I know from Morehouse was like, I don't know why she just didn't take that money and just, just move. And I'm like, well, why? Like, why is your first thought to just give... I mean, she roughed it out in the roughest parts. Like, why should she just take take the money and run? Like, you know, like, let her hold on to it. But I do find that kind of interesting that a lot of those college-educated, like, black people who kind of make these shows, in a strange way, they don't even have a loyalty to much of anything. You know what I mean? Like, nope. there's always this nope. attitude of, you know, cash out, take, take the money, you know, um, move somewhere else. So I just found... I find it very interesting how a lot of these college-educated black people, their first thing is always like, uh, why is that person still here? Why didn't they uh, move out? Why didn't they take the money? Uh, yeah. I would have taken that money and I would have done this and that, you know? And I said, well, that's why you that's why you would never be in that position because you would have sold the minute the neighborhood got bad in the 90s, you know what I mean, or the 80s. You would That, that attitude is exactly why she's in a position where she has a brownstone worth millions and you never would because you would never suffer through anything. Yeah. And like, I'll tell you one thing about DC specifically, like, and being around, you know, a university, a university that's located like in the heart of the city, like as an organizer in DC, you can't get some of them university campus students to come over into the parts that are the most wretched um, where we grew up. And I remember back in like 2017, going into like um, Howard and trying to get like some of those students to come over and like, you know, you know, help out and, you know, organize in um, Southeast DC. And we couldn't get anyone to come over there. And it was so interesting to me because these would be the same kids who would be busing from Southeast to actually, you know, go up Northwest to Howard. And I just thought it would be so interesting because you are literally positioning yourself as a gentrifier, but you're not of the community and you have no sense of home like many of us have had. Because I remember, you know, right up, like right up the street from the uh, Washington Hospital from which I was born, before my grandma uh, Bailey passed, they were trying to get her to sell her home. Those homes now go for about one million because like you said, they're stacked on top of each other. And so like, this is the very same thing gentrification had started well before the conversation, you know, caught, caught up with it. Like in the early 2000s, I remember them trying to buy my grandma sure. Bailey's uh, house or place that she had. So it, it, to me, it's just interesting how that shit works out. And like you said, these these college university can, um, students who are also black, they come in, they have no respect for the land, no respect for the culture. But they will try to like position themselves on the microphone when something happens. So, for example, don't mute do DC happened a few years ago. So, right outside of the Metro PCS store, um, <clears throat> Northwest on Georgia Avenue, where Georgia Avenue and U Street intersect, um, they had an issue with like uh, uh, the Metro PCS store playing "Go Go" really loud. Some, some white. You know, oh yeah, I, I remember that. They made yeah. the news. Oh, I remember and, that. And so what ended up happening? I remember. As a, as a yeah. resistance, 
everybody started going up to the uh, Metro PCS store and just playing loud music go go all the way up into uh up until like 4 a.m. Right. So it was this big thing because what you get with you know gentrification is sort of like this cultural um this cultural uh urban removal um that happens alongside with uh with uh you know um these black and brown bodies being pushed out into the suburbs um so it's just interesting to see like how some people will get up on the mic when those kind of movements happen but they're not of the community and haven't lived there but you know something i Something I find interesting sometimes is that sometimes you get people in those um, spaces who are like what you described with the college students who kind of disdain the area or whatever. But back on the campus, they'll be the one organizing things called like trap brunch and stuff like that. And I'm like, and I'm like, okay, you oh guys don't think yeah. anyone who listen about uh, what the white fraternity is doing blackface parties, but you're doing your own version of a blackface party, and you're not even seeing the irony. Yep. Yep. I mean, this is this is uh, this is something I contemplate uh, all the time. And I, and I feel somewhat strange saying this. I, I don't want it to sound offensive. Um, I had never seen Native American people until I lived in Minneapolis. Right. We all know about the plight of Native Americans um, uh, or First Nation in Canada. Um, we know what happened to Native people. But until you see um, how disenfranchised they are in person. How they made, they made, I saw Native American people on the bus in Minneapolis on the public bus system. They made black people look assimilated, dog. I was blown away. I was like, whoa, this is what it's like, huh? I'm starting to feel very much like a sort of native, <laughs> whereas there are different versions of black people in this country. I don't see the ones who have a history like mine. And frankly, I, I think most have been wiped out in one way or another. Um, uh, you know, and, 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 and I think this is part of the problem. When you go to a college and there are white people who, to satisfy their delusions, their guilt, their, their delusions of decency, need black people on the mic to perform a certain role, you learn that you're rewarded for performing that role. Um, it's not often that a person like me is in the room to check that. So you get comfortable performing that role, stepping up on those mics, protesting. You may never go to the reservation, <laughs> but you know how to talk about it. And you know how to act the part. Um, and I think it's we're in an era where performance in the crudest sense is people jump on it. Jessica Krug, et cetera. Every week there's a new story, right, of, of, of a white person in brown face or black face. But we don't understand. And white people don't understand because they don't know shit about black people. Mostly they don't want to. But the simpler, the better. But black people are trying to figure out, too, how do you assess the performance of blackness intra-group? You know, like, how do you how do we hold someone accountable um, when the mainstream audience doesn't give a damn to begin with? So there's no way that they're going to regulate that, you know. Um, and that's something that I think about daily. I think people have to start speaking up more. But intra-group criticism is so dead at this point. It's it's such a culture of tribalism and boosterism that that conversation gets scuttled with this sort of rationalization that you hear, which is black people are not a monolith, which is only trotted out to justify these sort of um, lame, shallow distortions of blackness like Harlem. It's rarely used to say, hey, we need more of this large percentage of people who have this sort of experience that runs counter to our narrative. And that's frustrating. 
And to tie it back to the subject, I think what you said, something really ties back to it. The same way like that, you know, the way you described like the reservation seems kind of uh, uh, so unassimilated, even compared to like, you know, what most black people go through. I feel like uh, what you describe applies to like the barbershop, like to these people, the barbershop is like the reservation. It's someplace that's unassimilated that reveals um or activates their imposter syndrome. And I think that's really what bothers them more about the barbershop than any real sincere belief about it being violent and rapey and homophobic. You know, because all these people even go into them enough to even have experienced this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even think these people are actually living what they say that they live. I think really what happens with them is that the barbershop is that place where it's like, um, I feel my imposter syndrome. I can't even pretend to explain this uh, to people. And what's kind of ironic about it is, and this is the real ironic thing to me, is that I don't even think barbershops, at least in my personal experience, are as big a deal in the life of an average black man as these outsiders uh, have convinced themselves and white people. Like, like I think that the people who exaggerate what a Mecca or safe space, uh, the barbershop is. I hate when people say barbershop is a safe space. Like, no, the barbershop is where I used to go to get my hair cut. Like, that's, that's it. Like, like, I wasn't, like, you know, weathering, like, slings and arrows of society and racism. I went to the barbershop. I'm like, oh, my God, a place where I can be me. Like, no, it's a place to talk about sports. We um, crack jokes, you know, and uh, we have, like, debates about stuff, you know, or, like, talk about, like, something that happened in the news. And then, you leave and you don't think about it till next time you get a haircut. Like, you know, like the only people who spend day in, day out treating the barbershop like a social club, usually like uh, old people. Like I remember when I was in high school, we used to spend a lot of time in the barbershop because we couldn't go anywhere to hang out. You know what I mean? And some of our friends used to be the barbers. So we used to go up in the barbershop. But yeah, I mean, I feel like um, both the exaggerated negativity and the exaggerated positivity of the barbershop is something kind of created by uh, these people with imposter syndrome. And and to them, for whatever reason, they've made the barbershop the totem of authenticity that uh, either they have to pretend to know inside and out or they have to destroy because it's at risk of exposing them as... Um, and yeah, I mean that's just how I feel about it. I'm curious how you guys uh, feel about your personal experience with barbershops and where you think these people are coming from with their weird obsession. Uh, I think not just barbershops. Let me add one last thing. I think actually they fear black men, straight black men in general, are going to expose them. And the barbershop, I think, is to them the purest manifestation of straight black men. So I'll just add, I think they don't even really care so much about the barbershop so much as straight black men. I, I I think it's like the place that they yeah. can't be inauthentic and get away with it. You know what I mean? It's like one of the last places. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, right. Like they're boring. Bro. I, I wonder how much of I wonder how much of the experiences that people have had with barbershops is really due to the fact that like they were there were places where people felt in danger as opposed to the places where people felt like exposed. You know what I mean? And I'm not I'm not gonna say that nobody's had a bad experience in a barbershop. I'm sure that's happened. It hasn't happened to me, but I'm not gonna use my experience and say it. It couldn't have happened to anybody else. But, uh, I mean, you see how they react, like, even on social media, when they tell ridiculous stories, they, they tell stupid lies, and then people call them out. Like, remember when um, 
what's his name? Uh, uh, dude that was like caping for Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, the Frederick Joseph, where, where he Frederick Joseph. Jo- yeah, 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 yeah. When me and um, uh, homeboy there uh, made fun of him for going to the fake barbershops, and you know we were just fucking around, like we were just trolling him. And he, like, you saw how like he got so angry, and he felt like we were, he was being he was like so under attack. And these toxic black men were just like, he was just trying to be out here, you know, uh, uh, something for the presidential candidate that he thought was going to make a difference. And here come these Trump supporters, because of course we had to be Trump supporters. Of here course. come these, uh, yeah, here come Hotep, these black, Hotep. yeah, 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 these hotels, these these black Trump supporters uh, trying to trying to spoil things for everybody. So it's like, if that's the way you, you react to somebody clowning on you on social media, what's it going to be like when you go into like a real life situation? And somebody just sees how corny you are. They say something like, uh, do you think they're just going to like walk and, away from it and take the L or do you think they're just going to like pick up the phone immediately and start talking about it? And that I believe happened more than anything else they say. Cause I've seen that happen where somebody goes to the barbershop and says something super corny and then they snap on them for like 10 minutes yeah. straight. You know what I mean? Like, uh, or it's a dumb question. <laughs> and if they had that scene, yeah. like, like, you know, like the bougie black person goes in there and then it's like, you know, ask some kind of question like you know like what's a tray you know and talking about like a three dollar size of crack and if people just start laughing at them like you know what a tray is or something and then they start you know cracking like like i've seen stuff (laughs) like that i've seen stuff like that happen like you know and then they'll clown you for a bit and um most black people who grow up around that get a thick skin but some people don't but they probably realize hey if you put that in the scene that i went to a barbershop and everyone mocked me for being corny uh that's not a good look, you know, and I think what Frederick Joseph was mad about wasn't so much that we were clowning him, but what he was mad about, I think, was that white people were seeing that this dude doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the thing, because their whole cachet depends, Mm -hmm. their whole cachet with white people depends on them being able to be the the black people that can, like, translate from, you know, political and intellectual to niggerese. So yeah. the fact that like yeah. the fact that you you had all these black people that were that were making fun of him and clowning on him, yeah, it was it was a bad look for him. And I think that's why he was getting so hysterical about it. And the nigga, and the nigga was probably getting paid under the table to go ahead and promote in oh, barbershops. Sure. So oh, of course, so once yeah. Once he saw that like he was being clowned, and again, like you said, T, there's a sort of like fear and anxiety around not being a, an authentic black, whatever the fuck that means, but most of them have had at best adjacent to the hood kind of uh, experiences or, you know, so they haven't actually been to like black barbershops. The only time they've actually been, you know, in the projects or in the hood is via their experience over their cousin's house on Thanksgiving or fucking, you know, Christmas or whatever the case may be. So they're always sort of like in this huge, like, they have this huge angst about going into spaces where, like you said, they didn't ha- they didn't have to grow up developing that kind of fixed skin. Like, literally, I just came. I literally like I wasn't joking when I said I literally just came from the barbershop. I can show you my hairline, but um, <laughs> but um, but literally, like we we were we were in there talking. Uh, a training day was on actually, and um, and we were in there talking, and I had brought this up. I had brought up this very point. Um, I was like, you hear, you hear what they saying about barbershops on Twitter, and he was like, Nah, man, I don't even be on Twitter, right? <laughs> so, like, so, um, and then I told him, and he was like, Yeah, man, that you know, and it, he was he basically said, in the event that someone actually got out of line, 
there's always gonna be a nigga, a few niggas, or, or everybody in the chair that's gonna be like, hey, like you can't speak like that. And then they brought us some examples that actually happened like recently. I mean, I wasn't there, but they were talking about how like something happened like that recently, how the people were pretty much told you can't talk like that here, you know, in this shop. I don't know whatever shop you go to, but in this shop, you can't. So it's just interesting to see how, like you said, a lot of this is really simply about these folks not trying to be exposed for who they actually are. So I get it. <laughs> the most verbally violent memory I have of a barbershop in all my years of going to them was this one dude told another dude that his head is so big that when he blinked, the CD skip. That was edit. Everybody just <laughs> fell out. Like, that is literally the most violent uh, <laughs> thing I've ever uh, seen in a barbershop. Yeah. You know, you, I was at a barber yesterday. It cut all my hair off. Um, and uh, the worst thing that happened was I, I was subjected to half of Think Like a Man, too. Um, there's always, <laughs> not for real. I was thinking about it. I was like, uh, God damn, why do I have to be? Nah, my worst, <laughs> my personal worst barber experience really didn't have to do with anything that happened in the shop at the time. But my barber, who was my uncle at the time, the nigga got on the phone and got into an argument with a nigga who said he was going to pull up to the shop. And that made me uncomfortable because I'm in that bitch like, so, wait a fucking minute. You, you're not, you're not. You need to do my hair, nigga. Like that—that's as close as this ever came to some like, you know, shit pop off. But again, people always correct it because it's a business at the end of the day, and you have different kinds of customers. Like at the end of the day, you have black creatures that come into the barbershop, black teachers that come into the barbershop, black businessmen who come into the barbershop, mothers, daughters, sisters. You know what I'm saying? Sure. There has to be a kind of conduct that. You know, and, and and most of these shops are owned by old heads anyway, so it ain't like it be. You can't, you can't curse at, at the barbershop I go to. It's a hood barbershop, and the older dude who owns it, make, it's a policy. Dude, you know that these can be really right. conservative spaces at times. What's interesting about the barbershop exactly. is what they sacrifice. The there are <laughs> times that say you can't you can't sag your pants. Yeah, and and the show had this guy talking about skeeting in uh, women's spaces, and he was insisting on continuing to talk about it even after the woman express discomfort and it's like okay who's gonna actually fuck up their business just to insist on talking about skeeting on faces but on top of that and i think andre pointed this one now q pointed this out where he said who still even says skeeting <laughs> nowadays like like yeah like, like, like and the funny the funny thing was the funny thing no. was when i said that um people were like oh so you weren't around in 2005 when everybody was saying it after little john nigga and i'm like is it 2005 now like that's the key point. <laughs> Why would you bring up 2005? Like that's where we still are. Like am I am I walking around downtown and seeing women with whale tail thongs? Like, do I show up for a job interview with the NBA draft day special? Like, come on, now. we're way past that. People don't talk like that anymore. And the other the other part was um, there was this lady that was uh, I I don't know. Oh yeah, I sent, I sent this to you, T. This lady that it, it's really funny how like she did the same thing that um. Deshaun and Jatella and those people were trying to do with um, uh, like trying to like throw a Britney Packnet and the other people under the bus. You remember this? Where like oh yeah where, yeah. Uh, yeah 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 where um they they basically like saw they saw how um one of their like forerunners was wounded and bleeding right so like Britney Packnet after doing that uh, that Grammy performance and the Cadillac commercial. Like there was backlash against her, so everybody was just uh, 
everybody was was uh, on her ass. And and then Samaria Rice, Samaria Rice's mom, like went on this uh, this tirade on Facebook and, and basically just called her out. And then so like these same vultures who have the same driver climber instincts as a Britney Packnet were like trying to step into the fray as if they were offering they were going to offer something in the way of like real black love and support that Britney Packnet couldn't, but they they're all peas in the pod. So it's funny yep. how this I saw this writer, because um, like after you know the uh, the the bad Jamaican dialogue scene and after the this Keaton on face scene had gone uh, made its rounds on Twitter, uh, somebody had said that uh, Twitter killed TV shows like Twitter killed TV writing, and this lady this lady mm-hmm. like hops on and she says. She quotes the person and she says, no, people stealing tweets kill TV writing as if you're actually saying something different when you say that. And then I was like, I was like, where is this going exactly? And she, she goes on to say that, like, it's writers who inauthentically, like, flatten the nuances of the conversation. And all they can do is just, like, steal from what happens on Twitter threads and put it on the television. But they don't actually understand the real real of what's going on in these conversations. So I'm like, oh, I get it. So you don't actually have a problem with this scene coming across inauthentic because she says it's not as though uh, barbershops aren't violent uh, parentheses they are but so it's like okay so what you're saying is you're able to capture the nuances of like big lip dark skin black male brutality in a way that this uh this other lady couldn't so you should be the one that hollywood hires to properly get across the ways in which like if she can be salient the ways the ways in which the blackmail predator is like the bane upon the community and if we were just if we were able to either rehabilitate or possibly even exterminate black males uh then then we would actually be able to uh get past racism or, or whatever the hell but she ends she ends the tweet thread basically saying that Oh, and if you're a Hollywood person who's seeing this, don't steal my tweet ideas. Hire me instead. I'm like, you did all that shit for a fucking. Sure. You got a job interview. You did all that sure. to beg for one. Yeah, sure. I saw. I saw that thread. I saw that thread, and what she was basically saying, which was crazy, was I. She was basically saying, the fact that you could actually the fact that you could parse it out tells me that you're like. You've poisoned your brain so much oh, by immersing yourself in this culture. Oh, I'm yeah, far gone. I'm far gone. But <laughs> but yeah, yeah. She 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 basically said like, uh, yeah, there's nothing actually wrong with the Harlem scene. Like you know, black men are predatory and violent, but these writers can't explain that to the public as well as we can on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so, so so hire me yeah. to hire me to spread the spread the yeah, uh, yeah. anti-black male slander, which I thought was kind of funny. First off, the idea that um, what was happening on that screen was any less nuance, you know, than what happens on Twitter. Like it was word for word what happened on Twitter. Like, like <laughs> if you if, if you hire yeah. her, she was gonna probably even make it less nuanced. Like 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 the idea that there was some kind of nuance to Twitter conversation that the average person just doesn't have the range to properly capture, you know, like right. Uh, but yeah. but then there was an ironic tweet that one of these professors made about the same show Harlem. I don't know if you've already spoken to this, but someone has suggested that what was up with uh, all these shows introducing black female professors as uh, having sex or raping the students, right? She said, this never happened. So why does it keep coming up in shows? And I thought it was like so ironic that 
on the one hand, we were talking about the same show. And on the other hand, they were talking about how um, negative uh, representations can sort of uh, mischaracterize, uh, you know, uh, a, a group or demographic who has a historical precedent of being like over-sexualized or caricaturized. So I thought it was just interesting that that professor made this tweet because for one, she said it never happens. And like, come on now, like we, we as people who, you know, have at least gotten to the, in certain higher areas in academia know that this shit happens. Like it's, you know, maybe it doesn't get called out. Um, maybe not, I mean, certainly, you know, not black women as much as like white female professors and, and white male professors, but professors in general, this is a thing that happens. So it is just interesting to see how they could understand how that kind of bad representation could lead to certain, you know, historical Jezebel tropes of black women. But yet this mythology of black men being overrepresented as violent, misogynist, patriarchal, all of this shit has no bearing on how black men uh, navigate the world. I thought that shit was hella interesting. Yeah, you know, I want to give Jason the last word because we're going to end uh, in, a couple, right. in a couple of minutes. So I just want to let Jason know that he's getting the last word. For sure. You know, all I was going to say was that um, what, I, what I find interesting is whenever I see these shows or hear about these shows, whether it's a black or a white writer, staff, characters, when they go to these areas, what they always find is inhumanity where anybody who had any sense of the community would find nothing but profound humanity, you know? And so barbers, barbers are like bartenders. I mean, you know, you get a customer in your chair and you have this sort of perpetuation of oral tradition. You hear these profound personal stories that are relayed over the course of a haircut. You know, you have people, not in every barbershop, but in many that I've gone to, there's a person who's either running errands or sweeping hair off the floor. And it's usually a former addict who's an older wayward person who they're letting earn some extra money in the shop. They're like legitimate stories of deep, profound humanity to be found in barbershops. I have never seen the caricature um, that was in that clip I saw, who's skeeting on faces. Um, but I have seen like budding entrepreneurs. You know, I've seen people who are essentially therapists for one another, people who have gotten in trouble and this is their last chance or their redemptive chance cutting here. Um, you know, my barber has his own small room in the barbershop now, and that's a big step up for him. And he has his eye on a new space. That's what he talks about while we get our hair cut. And then he makes me suffer through think like a man, too. But every <laughs> once in a while, you know, there's a documentary that he has on. And then we talk about it. And he's like, what do you think about this? Like, what's your take on that? Um, at, at past a certain age, the idea of these black men who are like... Um, really expressive about sexual conquest is really the opposite of my life experience as well. I feel like the only people who do that are people who haven't had sex. Like I don't, I don't have exchanges with my homeboys like that. And I never have, I'm not going to say I've never heard them, but in the barbershop that I go to, I've never heard them. nobody ever comes in and they're like, yo son, I set that coochie on fire last night. So I was living just like, <laughs> If you said that, everyone would give you the gas face, you know, and they would know you were square. So I imagine that these people have, I mean, Joan Didion's famous line is the dream was teaching the dreamers how to live. We've been in the, the, the culture of not just um, social media, but before that, the, 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 the sort of primacy of image over reality 
uh, via TV for so long that black people themselves have learned this sort of flattened blackness, this black vernacular and these black scripts that aren't playing out in real life. They perpetuate this negative mythology through these shows and people have come to expect that. So what they really do is flattering expectations and delusions of a clueless and racist audience. Um, and that's the ultimate betrayal. That's all. Uh, that's a great uh, place to end it. It's, it's funny you were talking about that whole thing with, um, you know, someone coming into the barbershop and saying that, you know, hey, I just like smashed this pussy or whatever, or, or whatever it is. And it, it made me think of in the, in the R. Kelly Lifetime special, I'll never forget this music writer. I used to be a big fan of this writer. I actually can't remember his name now. I feel like I, he became dead to me to the point that I forgot his name. But I used to read some of his books. Anyone remember the scene where he was claiming, uh, yeah, what people don't realize is in the barbershop, that's what they say all the time. Asian not to put a number. number. I'm like, which barbershop did anybody ever say that? I don't remember that <laughs> at all. Yeah, yeah, and that when young when young underage girls pass by, everyone starts talking about what they would do to her and how Asian nothing but a number. I like, I've never been in a barbershop where someone just sees an underage girl and just starts talking publicly in front of because there's nobody gonna know in front of in other barbershop. men. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Don't even know if that's somebody's daughter or whatever. Just like, hey, is that an underage girl? Let's talk about what we do to her. Like, get that fuck out of here. But yeah, anything goes these days. It's, it's pretty funny. And it was a guy, he was a Gen X guy who usually knows better. I can't remember the guy's name. I used to read his stuff and be a fan of him. But I was hoping one of you guys remember his name. But I'm I hope it's not Greg Tate, R.I.P. No, no, not Greg Tate, thank goodness. But no, it was a dude. He used to write good stuff. He still, uh, it doesn't matter. It's escaping me. But uh, thanks, everybody, for joining. Well, apparently his name is Clown. <laughs> it should be. It should be. Um, so everyone coming, we're going to try to do this like every Thursday. And don't be shy. Come up and speak next time. We're not going to bite your head off. I promise. You know, but uh, <laughs> well, it, it, well, it's just been crazy, maybe. But <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks for joining us, Jason and Rennie. And thanks, um, um, Hanzi, for coming for coming up, Imran. And yeah, uh, Leslie is doing another show that's starting at 1030, the Kanye Drake listening party, which I'm so out of touch. I have no idea what that even is. Uh, I, what they made friends again? Like, what's that about? I don't, I don't know. Like, uh, is that? I'm not sure if that was like publicity. That actually, the first that I even heard about it was uh, when Leslie was talking about. It, I was like, "Are you serious? I, I, I want to get on this." You know, so I'm about to like go check on my yeah. kids real quick and and uh, and hop back on this. But I don't know, man. Like, I, yeah, I'm not a huge fan. Of, I'm not a huge fan of either. But I'll watch for the train wreck factor. I'm curious. What, what were you saying? No, I was just I was just saying that uh, I have a hard time like even keeping up with stuff that happens with celebrities these days because like it's just it's so manufactured like there's nothing like when people got upset at each other and they had beef like you knew the beef was real right like you remember how Prince and Michael Jackson fell out you remember that yeah yeah and it's like you knew that they were not going to talk to each other for the rest of their lives like Prince that was, was a hater man shut up I mean, shut up he was. listen uh, ready ready ready. What the hell? Wait, wait, wait. What the hell kind of way this to open up a song? Other... What kind of way to open up a song is your bud is mine? Okay. <laughs> how 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 would you feel? How would you feel as a man having somebody open up that song to you that way? And I expect you to stand there and take it. I guess I guess it would hurt if I never you know had better records than Michael. But um, getting that, <laughs> I mean, I I don't know what I would say. I mean, it, it's hard to be 
under thriller, under bad, under off the wall. I mean, it's hey. okay. Wait, this is a whole can of worms that can be a whole show in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should probably, yeah, we should probably wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because because that's gonna I have strong opinions about this too. I'm sure a lot of people do. But yeah, I mean, we can have that conversation in a later episode, uh, for sure. But uh, yeah, thanks everybody, and also follow us on Rumble. Uh, search like Rumble Champagne Sharks because uh, we simulcast these shows there as well, and we have gonna have exclusive content over there. And yeah, thanks everybody. Everybody, be good. Take care. I right, take it easy. Oh, and check out check Please. out Leslie Lee's room. It's uh the show's called The Culture. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as Bye. you uh, pop out of here, head over to uh, head over to Culture. Where's right, right, cool. Peace.